0: Um, as, a, as a pastor, um, one of my, my privileges is to be able to do weddings, and um, some of you have gotten to do weddings too, and it was a privilege that you got to do that, that wedding, I'm sure uh, you would say that, I hope you would say that, and um, in the wedding though, there, there, was, there is one significant part of the wedding that if it's not there, it's a problem, right? I mean, there, there's a part of the wedding that, that this is the whole reason why we're gathered and having a wedding, And that's the part where the bride and the groom are committing themselves to one another, where they're saying their vows, right? And and so there comes a point in every wedding, or they should, otherwise I'm wondering if you had a wedding, but at some point where the bride is going to to say her vows, to the groom, I commit to do this, I promise to love you in this case, in that case. The the groom's gonna reciprocate and he's gonna say, and I promise to love you in this case and in that case. And, And they're promising themselves to, one another. Now, it would be a really weird thing if two people would get together and the vows sounded something like, I promise I'm going to always work for you. I promise that I'm going to always do what you want me to do to make you happy. I promise I'll always do the honey-do list. I'll get the chores done. I won't burn your dinner. I'll cook your dinner." Um, you know, stuff like that. And we're talking about what we would do for one another. And then as the marriage starts to kind of settle in, we don't actually spend time with one another. We just kind of show up to do things for one another because after all, that's what we promised we would do is, is I would do things for you. That would be a little weird, wouldn't you say? Nobody goes into a marriage, well, nobody may be too absolute for today. Most people don't go into a marriage expecting that they're getting a hired hand expecting that they're getting someone to just work for them. You go into a marriage because you love one another and you want to be with one another. And as a result of that love and that desire to be with one another, what comes out of that is, and I promise to do this. I promise to love you in this way. And this morning, as we go to Exodus chapter 19, that's sort of the picture that we're going to get. Now, now there's a, a, a slight difference because... In our society today, there's some things that we don't do in weddings that they would have done back in ancient Hebrew times. For instance, it was very common when a man was to uh, want to be married to a woman, they would go through a betrothal period, right? This would be usually a year-long period, and there was a couple purposes for that year. Um, This was a patriarchal society, and so one of the reasons was to make sure that the, the woman was not already pregnant. But then the other reason was that the the husband had to go and leave his parents' house and provide a place for his wife, and usually that involved building a house and a place for them to live together, and then when that was done, he would then go and get his wife to be with him, and they would then go through the marriage ceremony. A A little bit different than today, but this morning, that's what you're going to see God doing for his people getting them to be with him, committing himself to them, and in return, you're gonna see his people commit themselves to God. And where we're going this morning is this, and this is, this is really key, God's people are first with God before they live for God. And that order, we're gonna unpack that, but that order is extremely important. God's people are first with God before they live For God, So go to Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 is where we're starting. And let's just look at this first part of that that statement. God's people are with God. They're with God. Chapter 3, 19, chapter 3. Did you see what I already did? Some of y'all, I knew. You're smiling at me. Why are they laughing at me? Chapter 3, uh, verse 3. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, Okay, so we're about to get the thing that Moses is supposed to declare to the people. Now, before we go there, though, let's, let's get our context a little bit. Moses has, last week we looked at the 10 plagues, right? Last week we saw how God uh, brought these plagues on the people of Egypt so that the Egyptian people would know that he is God, so that his own people would know that he is God, that there's none like him, and to judge the gods, little g, of Egypt, And so now since then, what's happened is now now Moses has been able to take his people out of Egypt, and they're going into the desert, and they're going to the mountain that God told Moses, bring the people to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and they're going to be with me here. And so now Moses is at that mountain, the people are at the mountain, Moses goes up the mountain, and God says, now I want you to speak this to the people. All right, so here's what he says, verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I lifted you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We're gonna camp here for a moment. So when, when God says, you yourself, so Moses, you, and the people of Israel, you have seen how I have brought you out of Egypt. Now we just saw that, right? He did so with great power. He did so as an act of great mercy and compassion. He did so in a way that everyone knows that he alone is God, there's none like him. And so he describes that as, I lifted you on eagles' wings, which is an image that you're going to see as you continue to read through your Old Testament. God's going to refer to it, uh, the way he delivered his people out of Egypt in that way several other times. He's going to talk about carrying his people. And the idea behind this is an uh, an older eagle, a mother eagle would be feeding her younger eagles, nurturing them, providing for them. And then at some point, that mother eagle is going to, to help those younger eagles learn how to fly. And there's a picture of power when you see an eagle just soaring through the air. And so God says, you know I did this, and it was like an eagle soaring. It was with power, and it was with care, okay? And I did this, and I brought you to myself. God's people are first with God. And so he's bringing them so that they will be with him in the desert at that mountain. Now let's be clear on something. God is everywhere present, if you read your scriptures and you understand how God reveals himself and the nature of God, you're gonna understand that there's no limits upon God and where he can be. There, there's no limits about about that, that God can only be contained to one place. God can be everywhere present at once. Now it's important to keep a distinction here. God is not in everything at once, nor is he in everything. In other words, there are some views, some worldviews that would say God is in everything and everything is God. That's completely different from what the Bible says about God. That would be something that you would find in a lot of the Eastern religions, um, some New Age manifestations of that. But Buddhism, Hinduism, a lot of the Asian um, religions would believe that God is in everything, which means he's in the creation and that creation is divine. And therefore, God is everywhere. That's not what we mean when we say God is everywhere present. What we mean is God is above all things. He is not part of creation. He created. But he is everywhere present at any point. There's no place where his, if we're talking about God in human terms, his eyes cannot see and his ears cannot hear. If you're praying to God and and you're here in, in El Reno, Oklahoma, and someone else is praying to God in Wuhan, China, He can hear both at the same time and not be taxed in any way. He can respond to both at any time and and not be taxed in any way, all right? So, So let's be clear, when he says, I brought you to myself, he's not saying that I wasn't with you, because after all, he told Jacob back in Genesis, go down to Egypt and I will be with you. What he's doing is he's bringing them to a place where he is going to physically manifest himself, where he's going to make himself physically visible in a way, in a cloud, He's already been leading them as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, but he's going to come to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and there he's going to make himself known and he's going to reveal things to his people, and they're going to be with him. Now, this is important for us to get because uh, I think a lot of us confuse the order, and we think that God wants us to do things for him, and we don't think that God wants us to really be with him. And so what we tend to do is we approach our faith and we approach Christianity as, okay, now I'm a believer in Christ, so what do I do? And then we, we pile up a list of things that we're supposed to do if you're a believer in Christ, and so we set about doing those things because, after all, it's a lot more productive if I can do things, and people might, might look at me a little bit uh, better and with more respect if I do a lot for God. Even as pastors and people in ministry, this is a huge challenge for us because we would rather in our, in our, in our, our self and in our, in our fleshly nature and our sinfulness, we would rather do things that you can see, so that you will praise us for doing things, and we'll be everywhere that you are, or we'll try to be, and and we'll show up to things, and and we'll insert ourselves in that, and then then we'll run, 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 because we're real busy for Jesus, and we think, that's what you expect of us, and some of you do, And, and then we think, but if I do this, you'll be pleased with us, and some of you will be. But so many pastors, ministers, people in the ministry burn out because they're running a pace and they're doing things and they're never taking time to be with God because they're prioritizing the things that they do over the person they're with. And it's the same for all of us. We can spend time doing things. You can can get up every single morning before anyone else does and you can read your Bible and keep a Bible reading plan for the year, and you can journal, and you can memorize Scripture, and you can spend time in dedicated prayer, and, and you have a list that you go through. I mean, and these are all great things, and some of you really excel at these kind of things, and others of you don't, and that's okay. But what starts to happen if we're not careful is those things, check, 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 and we get caught up with, I did that today. And we read our Bibles for, for purely knowledge and not intimacy. We read it for information, not intimacy. And that's a problem. Because if we just grow in our knowledge about God, and we learn how we're supposed to live for God, but we never grow in our intimacy of, with God, and we never know Him more, then we're just doing things for God, never knowing God. And that's a huge disappointment. Disappointment and that's gonna leave us empty, that's gonna leave us run down and ragged, and we're doing things, and it may appear to us like things are changing, but there's no power in our lives, there's no spirit fueling us, because we've done gone and left him, and we've decided this is what I have to do. And so God calls his people and he says, I'm gonna bring you to be with me, and it's important that that order is first, that we are first a people that are with God, before we go and live for God. In fact, it's one of the things that all throughout the scripture is going to characterize the people of God is that their God is with them. Their their God is not distant from them. Their their God is is not one who they only go to when they're in trouble, but but the, the, the people of God, the people of Yahweh, the true God, Christians today as we call ourselves, we are people that God has said, I'm going to be with you And yet so often we're people characterized not by being with God, but doing things for God. And we get the order backwards and we start doing for God before we ever spend time with God. And so many of you are doing your Bible reading plan. You're doing the F260 reading plan or you're doing some other reading plan. And I wanted to stop and encourage you just for a moment. Maybe you've gotten behind and that happens. And and then you're tempted to quit because, after all, a Bible reading plan, what what its goal is is to keep you reading. And I I would say, yeah, keep reading. But but, but before you just stop reading out of discouragement, what I'd say is, hey, listen, just open up your Bible to the next day on your list. Chapter, verse, whatever it is, open it up and read for intimacy. Who cares if you're on schedule? The goal is not, not primarily that you get through your Bible in a year so that you can brag and boast about it. What good is that? Who cares if you've read your Bible every year for the last 30 years if you've never known God deeper because of it? You might have grown in your information about the Bible, and you can quote things left and right, but listen, you've wasted your time if you don't know God better. So so if you're tempted to quit and get discouraged because the snowball's starting to happen, right, it's rolling down the hill, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know what? Abandon the year goal at this point. And just read when you have the opportunity and read for intimacy. God, I'm I'm sitting down, and and I want to see wonderful things in your word. So open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. And you start reading that chapter. And you might get six, six verses in, and God speaks to you through your word, and you're going, that's it right there. That's what I needed to hear today. That stood out to me. And you might stop and jot some notes down, you might journal, and you might spend some time praying about that specific thing. And maybe you stop for the day, or you stop for the moment, or maybe you go, you know, but I'm going to keep going because God's going to say something else to me. If that's the case, the the goal is more important that you are with God rather than doing things for God. Because if you spend time with God, and you're growing in your intimacy, and you're growing in your your love and your desire for God, you know what's going to flow out of that? living for God. But so often what happens to us, and, and, and I'm guilty of it, just as many of you are guilty of it, is we gather here. We gather on a, on a Sunday morning as the, the, the body of Christ, and we, we're gathering and in, in a unique way. We're all together. And, and we come and we think, um, when I say things like, now I want you to go and I want you to live differently because of this, and I want you to go and I want you to share with others about Jesus, and I want you to go and do this, some of you take that challenge And you go and do it, but maybe your motivation is you're not doing it out of a desire to know God more and out of a love for God, but you're doing it because I told you to do it. And after all, this is what believers in Christ do. This is what Christians do. And so you just go out and you're doing it out of obligation. Maybe you're doing it out of guilt or so that you can avoid guilt, or maybe it's out of some kind of legalistic motive and legalistic meaning I'm going to obey a rule or a law so that I can get approval or acceptance in obeying that rule or law. And instead, what should be happening as we gather, because listen, as a believer in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, God gives us his spirit. You have the Spirit of God with you wherever you go. He never leaves you, never forsakes you. He is always with you. So in a sense, wherever you go is holy ground. We've talked about that, right? But then there's another sense that's very unique. When the people of God gather in local gatherings like this, or at First Baptist El Reno, or or at at other churches across the the United States, or the world, right? Where, Where people gather and believers in Christ gather, there's a unique thing that happens, when the spirit in all of us is together in this way, God is among his people in a unique way. And so when we come, we should come together and to be with God in his presence and so that we can be encouraged, that we can be uh, filled, so that as we are encouraged and filled, that then we leave here and as an overflow, we live differently because of that. But instead we gather to check a box and we leave with motives that are more about do, 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 and less about I've been with God and the result is this. And so God says to his people, I'm going to, I lifted you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. That's where we've got to start. We've got to be a people that are first characterized by being with God. That may mean you need to slow down. Probably does. We live busy lives, we live noisy lives, we live chaotic lives, we live lives that are easy to be distracted. I'm as guilty as any of you of when things are too silent, what do I do? Pick out the phone, start scrolling, see what's going on, right? Or, or I've, I've been sitting for two minutes, that's two minutes too long some days, and so what do I need to do something else, right? And so we fill that space and we don't give ourselves time to just be in the presence of God. So sometimes maybe it means instead of your quiet time in the morning getting up and getting your, your way through list, maybe some mornings you decide, you know, I'm gonna sit here in the presence of God. Lord, I wanna just be here in presence. I want to enjoy you and your presence. Reveal yourself to me if you want to. If not, God, just, just, just encourage me in this moment. I'm sitting here before you and then you sit quietly and you just tune your heart and your mind to Christ. And maybe... God speaks to you, maybe he, he leads you in some way and says, hey, go to this verse. Maybe something, some thought comes to your mind and you start to dwell on that thought that, that God has taken you down that path. But you're allowing space and you're allowing room and quietness for him to be able to speak because sometimes even the things that we do in the name of Jesus may be busyness and a distraction to us actually hearing from him. So I want... I want to to bring you to be with me. Now, that's incredibly important because verses 5 and 6 now get into the covenant, the law of Moses. And if you just drop yourself into the scripture at at chapter 19, verse 5, and you haven't read verse 4, and you don't consider in verse 4, then your whole view of the law gets skewed. And your whole view about the Old Testament gets Skewed. And you start to think things like, well, God intended for the people in the Old Testament to get saved by obeying the law. And he never did. In fact, as we go forward, we're going to see after God's people are with him, then they live for God. And so in verse 5, he says, and now, or therefore, so then, depending on your translation. In other words, I'm going to bring you to be with me, and now. So being with God is first, and then now he gives the covenant. So the first, the, the first priority is of God is that you be with me. In fact, that gets carried into the New Testament because in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus calls his, uh, his disciples by name, the 12. And it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he called them to be with him and then to send them out to preach and proclaim in his name. Jesus' priority is the same as God's priority, Imagine that, since Jesus is God, right? And so, so then and now is the covenant. If you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So look, there's a few things here, but, but, but here's what God's doing. So remember I gave you that wedding imagery? This is the vows, this is the vows where God's committing himself to his people, but make no mistake, he's already called them out to be with him, which means the covenant that follows the law, the covenant of Moses, the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, call it any of those things, it means this is a covenant based in grace. Because God has always been a God of grace. He has never once abandoned being a God of grace. The fact that he delivered the people out of Egypt, calls them to be with him, that is an act of grace because they did not deserve it. He was simply being faithful to his promises. He was being faithful to what he said he was going to do to Abraham. He's continuing to develop and reveal his plan, but God is doing this out of grace, not because Israel performed for him, not because Israel was somehow better than all the other nations. In fact, you might remember up to this point, God had already wiped out all of humanity except for eight people, right? Genesis 6, Noah and his family. Starts over with Noah and his family. And just like he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, spread my image, spread, spread my, my way of living, spread my, my character across the earth. He said the same thing to Noah after they started over, be fruitful and Multiply. Then you might remember that there was another rebellion in Genesis chapter 11 where the people were trying to abandon God and then instead worship in the way they wanted to worship. And so God disinherits all of them and then plucks one man out of the middle of that rebellious group of people, Abraham, and says, I'm going to work through him. And through him, I'm going to build a people, I'm going to give them some land, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through him. So you might remember this is God's grace. And he's continuing to operate in accordance with that grace. And so when God says, if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, he's now saying there's going to be some stipulations on you. God's already extended his grace. But if you want to experience the blessings, if you want to be his special possession and know what it's like to be that, if you want to be his kingdom of priests, if you want to be a holy nation, then you've got to listen to me and obey me. And so he's going to then give all these laws to them. Some say it's 613 laws, right? Now, it's also important, before we talk about some of these these things that he says they're going to do, because we're not going to get into the law here for, for a little while, but we did when we studied the book of Leviticus. The law was never meant to be a way to live so that God accepts you. Never intended to be that. God didn't give it for that purpose. It got corrupted and turned into that. The law was always given to a specific people, the people of Israel, at a specific time in a specific culture so that they would know who God is because his character is revealed in the law and how to live in his presence and then how to live among other people. And so it would be wrong for us to take many of these laws and say, well, therefore, I have to obey this law. It would make absolutely no sense for us to obey many of these laws because many of these laws are very culturally oriented. There are other aspects of this covenant that you do see transcends. And so, yeah, we certainly still live by things. Like, for instance, we oftentimes turn to many of the Ten Commandments, and we say, well, I still should have no other God before me, right? Correct. I shouldn't worship idols, right? Correct? So there's things about the law that transcend, but there's also some things that are cultural. But God never gave the law so that his people would obey it in order to get accepted. He's already accepted them. He's already brought them to be with him. And then he says, now here's how you live in my presence. So living in obedience to the law was meant to be a response to God's grace and bringing them out of Egypt. Okay, so if we just start with verse 5, though, and we don't read verse 4. That's the type of skewing of the law we're going to get. Oh, God expected people to obey him to be accepted. And that's, that's, that's the old covenant. But the old covenant was a covenant of grace. I want you to hear that because God has not changed. Now, the old covenant, though, the law, in order to keep the law, it was dependent upon the people of God, Israel's obedience, in other words, God makes this covenant. If, if you, the people of God in that day, are going to keep this law, you have to obey it in order to keep it. But they fail in obeying it. And where this is different from the new covenant, That comes in because God would one day talk about there's going to be a new covenant. The difference is it's still obedience to the law. It's still obedience to the covenant in order to to get the blessings of the covenant. But the obedience no longer depends upon you. God is the one responsible for that. And so in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were responsible to obey in order to keep the covenant. In the new covenant, the people of God, God is responsible for keeping that covenant because he says, I'm going to give them a new heart. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. I'm going to put a new spirit in them. I'm going to give them my spirit. I'm going to write the law on their heart. And in Ezekiel chapter, um, I think it's uh, 36, verse 22, he starts to describe this covenant. And one of the things he says in there is, and I will cause them to obey. The difference is that God takes on responsibility in the new covenant for the obedience factor. And it's not up to us to obey the covenant in order to be accepted the covenant was already obeyed by christ the requirements of the obedience of the covenant was already met in christ he did it for us so that then when we trust in him we get his righteousness that he earns and it's not based on us it's based on his (laughs) And the Spirit of God helps and empowers and enables us to live in the way that God calls us to live, okay? New covenant versus old covenant. But God says this to them, if you obey, here's what will happen. First, you'll be my special possession. You'll be my treasure. You might remember that that God disinherited all the nations. Genesis 11, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, he disinherits all of them. He says, I'm not going to be the God of these people. But then he picks one person, Abraham. And he says, I'm gonna work through him. And so now he's continuing that same mindset because the people of Israel are the people of Abraham. They're the family of Abraham. And he says, if you obey, you'll be my special treasure, my special possession. Now this would be like a king's vault room a king in the, the day would have had a special treasure room, right, where, where this is where all the treasure that they've gotten from the different people they've conquered, they put it in here. Their most prized treasures, their most expensive treasures, they put it in this vault room. Or more modern day, it would be like the queen's crown jewels, which, which are priceless, They're kept and they're, they're, I was looking this up last night because I needed to know at least a little something about it, But if I'm going to use it as an example, right? And so they, 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 they take these crown jewels and once a year, the royal jeweler will clean these crown jewels. But these crown jewels are actually priceless. There's no value placed on them because there's no value that can be placed on them because of how valuable they are. And God says to his people, if you keep my covenant, you will be my, God is a king, special possession my treasure think about that god calls us to be with him he calls us to enjoy his presence and then to live for him but in calling us to be with him and be in relationship with him we can become his special treasure that's how god views his people he doesn't view his people as as workers for him which would have been altogether different from all the other gods because every other God in that day and the people who worship their gods believe that I worship this God so this God will be happy with me. I bring sacrifices so that my God can eat. Okay, And, and then I entertain my God so that he doesn't or she doesn't get bored. Right? And so you were really for serving a purpose for the gods that they would be entertained, fed, and, and pleased. And yet this God, the true God, says, no, I'm going to bring my people to be with me. Because God knows there's nothing greater than being with God. There's nothing greater than God's presence. There's nothing more fulfilling, nothing more satisfying, nothing that gives people value greater than God's presence. He says, I'm going to be, you're going to be my special possession out of all the nations. Does God show favoritism? Yep, He does. Because he loves his church in a special way. He loves his people in a special way that he doesn't love everyone else. You know why I say that? Because I go to Ephesians chapter 5 and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the world. No, love the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. God has a special type of love for his people that he focuses on them where he can say, you're my special possession out of all the nations. And it's not wrong for God to do that. Because God's desire then is that his special, ch- his special possession for all the nations become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, if you are God's special possession, God's people, he calls them out so that they would be his special possession. But in being God's special possession, now you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests. That is, a priest is someone who represents God to the people and represents the people to God. The, the priest is someone who would bring and mediate. He would dispense the blessings of God to the people. He would communicate the things of God to the people. He would reveal things about God to the people. And then, as God revealed things to him, then he would bring that back. He would intercede on behalf of the people to God. And so, God says to his people, I'm calling you to be my special possession. And if you keep my covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a group of people who function and live your lives as priests. Not that every single one of them would be in the priestly service in the temple. No, but that the way they live their lives among the rest of the nations would be outward focused. Because God is is concerned and interested and always has been in not just having a a single solitary nationality or the Jewish people for his people, but has always been interested in reclaiming the nations, always. It wasn't that God changed his mind after Israel, the Jewish people became disobedient and said, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. No, God's plan was always, I'm going to include the Gentiles, all these nations, I want to reclaim them, but I'm going to do it through Abraham. I'm going to do it through his people, Israel. I'm gonna do it through a nation that's holy to me and a kingdom of priests. Israel was called out to live in a way before God that would be a, a communication tool to all the other nations. This is how we relate to our God because this is how our God relates to us. This is how our God has revealed himself to us, and this is what we know about him, and that's why we live differently. That's why we don't have to feed him. That's why we don't have to entertain him. That's why we don't have to live our lives wondering if he's pleased with us. He's already shown us that. And they were then to to share that with the other nations. And it would turn the idea of a kingdom upside down, wouldn't it? Because if you were a part of a kingdom, there's someone at the top and they rule down. They dominate. But God says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They serve. You're going to be a group of people, a nation, a kingdom who's characterized by serving others because that's what God does. He he gives himself. He pursues people. And then you're going to be a holy nation. Now, these two things, kingdom of priests and holy nation, they're saying the same thing. They're just saying it in different ways. They're saying the same thing, so kingdom and nation go together, holy and priests go together. And so the idea of being a holy nation is you're a nation who's living in the presence of God. And as a holy nation living in the presence of God, you're going to live out what it looks like to live in the presence of God. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. So God calls his people to be with him, and then he calls them to live for him but that order is important. Now, you might be thinking, great, that's Israel, that's the Old Testament, that's, that's not for me today. And, and, and that's a covenant that God made with Israel, and you'd be absolutely right. And that covenant, that's the old covenant, that's the law, and that's no longer in effect, it's, it's been canceled out or it's been fulfilled, would be the better way to say it, by Jesus, and we're under the new covenant, and you'd be absolutely right. But I want to take you briefly to a New Testament letter by one of the men who walked closely with Jesus. He was on the inner three. See, Jesus had 12 disciples, but then even among those 12, he had three of them that he took in special places with him, Peter, James, and John. I want to show you in the book of Peter what he says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I'm going to pull it up here, but if you want to flip to that in the New Testament, you can So Peter's talking now to a group of people who are believers in Jesus. New Testament. New Testament. And he says to this group of people who are believers in Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. Pause. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because Peter's quoting back from Exodus. And he's saying to the people of God now who are in Christ under this new covenant, hey, it's not changed. You're still a people of God. You are his own possession. You are holy. You are a nation of priests. In other words, the people of God still are to live in his presence as holy and then to live among other people representing God. It hasn't changed because he says, so that... So he's saying, you are all these things so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a covenant of grace, just as in the Old Testament. God calls his people to be with him, and then he calls them to live for him. And so, if you're thinking, you know, we look at Exodus, but that doesn't apply to me, yet Peter says, hey, this is true of God's people today. Because in Jesus, Jesus has come, and as we we talked about a little bit earlier, he lived a perfect life of obedience. He met the requirement of the law, the old covenant, he fulfilled it because he obeyed it perfectly. He has a righteousness now that nobody else can claim to have because everyone else would be guilty of violating the standards and the glory of God. But Christ lived it perfectly so that he can fulfill it and then start the new one. And then in starting the new one, he would say to his his followers at night before he died, this is bread, it's my body. It's broken for you. Do this as often as you... As, as you remember me. And this, this cup of the, the covenant, this is, this is my blood for you, the blood of the covenant. And so as you drink this cup, remember me. And so he was starting this new covenant where God's people would now come through Christ, the one who has met the requirement and God would still bring his people to be with him. And then they live for him. But that order is so important. God's people are first with God before they live for God. If you get that order backwards, you're gonna live an exhausting life. You're gonna live a burdensome life. You're gonna live a life that God's not even calling you to live. You might be morally good on the outside. You might avoid a lot of trouble in life because you're living good, but it's doing nothing for you before God. God does not expect you to obey him perfectly. He expects you instead to come to Christ Believe in Him, trust in what He's done on your behalf, receive by faith what God has given us through Christ, and then now live in response to that. And listen, you know as well as I do that it's a whole different thing if I'm living in response to someone who has already loved me and accepted me, as opposed to I'm living in order to earn that love and acceptance. Unfortunately, some of you know that all too well. You know what it's like to try to live to earn somebody's acceptance, And maybe you measure up, and maybe you don't. And it depends on the day. That's not God. Because God wants his people to be with him. Because there's nothing greater than being with God. And then you live for God. Now, some of you, you've trusted in Christ. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe it's been recent. But you don't know how to be with him but you're doing all kinds of things for him. Stop it. Just stop it. Right? You remember that old Saturday Night Live, that, that Saturday Night Live skit where the, the counselor, he's sitting there and the person comes in. I personally love this as a counselor at times because the person comes in and they say, I'm dealing with this. And the counselor's sitting back and he's going, mm-hmm, I've got some advice for you. Stop it. Right? And then they, they say, okay, you, what? And then they sit, put their next thing on there. Just stop it. And that's his advice. to Just stop it. Listen, you're damaging yourself if you're living for God without first being with God. Stop it. Slow yourself down. Take time instead to be with the Lord, to enjoy Him, and and stop trying to, to make your goals just to get through something so that you can boast about it, whether to yourself or to others. If that's what you're doing, stop. And instead of reading for information, read for intimacy. Instead of praying through a list because you think that's what you're supposed to do, sit before the Lord and say, God, how would you have me pray this morning, this evening, this afternoon? And instead of designating your prayer for just certain times of the day, why don't you be in continuous prayer before the Lord? As you go throughout your day and you're praying throughout your day, I'm headed into this this meeting right now. God, would you go with me in that? Help me to, to be wise in my decision making. God, I'm going on this job today, and would you help me to be a light to the people that I'm working at their house? God, I'm I'm with these kids again today. God, would you help me to model your love for them? Whatever it is, pray continuously. Instead of saying, well, God's at dinner, God's at lunch, God's at breakfast, God's at bedtime. Throughout the day, be with God. Maybe it means that you've got to reorient your life and the rhythms of your life to where for a time or maybe for, for permanent, you decide to say, I'm going to put some intentional things in place that, that make me slow down. And so at certain times of the day, not because I think it makes me more spiritual, but because I need to be disciplined in this way, I'm going to stop and I'm just going to pray. Pray. I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm just going to stop at this time and this time. And maybe you set alarms, maybe you set timers, and it's going to help reorient you to say, I'm going to slow down. Have I I conversed with the Lord in the midst of this today or have I just been pounding things out today? Lord, are you in this? Some of you need to slow down and you need to relearn how to be in the presence of God and to live with God. Because God doesn't just call us to a transactional relationship where you know God because you've trusted in Christ, but you don't know God past that point. That's never what God intended. He wants you to know God and continue to know him. Even the apostle Paul, who probably probably knew more about God than any other person, says in Philippians chapter 3, my aim is that I might know him, not know about him, Not know more about him, but that I might know him. And you would think by that point, Paul would have known Jesus. Like he would have been intimate with Jesus. He would have been close to him, but he still says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrections, that I might join him in his sufferings. That's what some of you need to do. Others of you, you need to hear this freeing message that God does not expect you to perform and obey in order to be accepted. So stop. Stop trying because you will never measure up. None of us can. That's the beauty of the gospel is that God knows these people that they are sinful and they're rebellious and they would never measure up and yet he still sends Jesus while we are still sinners to die for us and that's how he shows his love. Not that we would then have to perform in order to be accepted but that we would trust in Christ and God's love shown to us through Christ receive the life that Christ gives us, the righteousness that is His, and then enter into this relationship with God, to know Him, to be with Him, and then we follow with, my life is changed because of that. I live differently because I know God. I live differently because my desires are changing. I live differently because the things I used to enjoy, I no longer enjoy. I enjoy and desire more the things of God. So as we take a moment, we're going to let this just settle. Ask the Lord, what's got my name on it? What do you want to say to me this morning? Grace, you've shown me grace. You've lifted my shame and drawn me with love. You are a God who calls people to be with you because there's nothing greater than being in your presence. You're holy God. There's none like you. None can touch you. None can compare to you. And you call us to be with you. And you made that way possible for us. As sinful and rebellious and unclean as we are by coming in the form of a man, a Christ, that he might live on behalf of a people that you would call to yourself, that he might die on behalf of a people you would call to be with you, that he might rise from the dead to give life to the people that you would call to be with you. Change us because of that, because of knowing you, and God, if there's places where we are living for you, but we are not with you, if we've gotten ahead of you, and God, our, 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 our lives look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're corrupted, they're decaying, let your spirit show us and bring life and re- vitality. For those, God, this morning who have not trusted in Christ, this morning, may they hear, you don't expect them to clean up and obey in order to be accepted, you've obeyed on their behalf you've met the requirements of the covenant, the standards of God through Christ, that they might come to be with you, but only through Christ, because apart from him, there's no other way. In just a moment, we're going to dismiss, but maybe you'd like to pray with some folks, so I'm going to invite our prayer team, if you just spread out across the room, wherever you'd like to be available. And they'll be available to pray with you about whatever. If there's something specific, just let them know, and they'd be glad to pray with you. So you guys can come if you're part of the prayer team and spread out wherever you'd like. And so now as we depart from here, be different, but do it because you've been with God. Do it because you know Him and are known by Him, and do it for His glory. Pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys next week.